You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 34, The Italo-Ethiopian War, Part 1, The Invasion. This week, a big thank you goes out to Jacqueline for the donation and to George, Dave, Grant, and Patrick for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of these podcast episodes, plus special Patreon-only episodes released once a month. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more information. One of the cornerstones of European diplomacy during the 1920s and early 1930s was the relationship between Britain, France, and Italy that had been built during the First World War, and then had continued after it was over. With the retreat of the United States back into its posture of at least semi-isolationism after the Paris Peace Conference, and the relative state of political chaos in many parts of Europe, it would be these three nations and their goals that would drive much of European politics during this period. The shift of the Italian government and the rise of Mussolini to power that we discussed back in episodes 7 to 11 did not greatly alter this relationship. However, during the 1930s, the relationship between the three nations would become strained and eventually would break down entirely. There were many reasons for this, but undoubtedly one of them was the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, which would begin in October 1935. This event would trigger a political crisis between Britain, France, Italy, and the League of Nations as the three allies tried to reconcile the various political and public feelings both within their own nations and among the international community, differences that would eventually become very challenging to overcome. At a basic level, the Italians led by Mussolini were looking to expand their influence in Africa and used a few events to justify an invasion of Ethiopia. This would not be the first time that the Italians attempted to invade one of the few independent African states, having already failed in an invasion of Ethiopia in 1896. The British, driven primarily by public opinion and imperial interests in Africa, were the primary voice against this Italian aggression, and they would use the League of Nations and the threat of economic sanctions to try and alter Italian actions. The French were mostly just stuck in between. With the rising power of Germany, and with many of these events occurring simultaneously with obvious signs of German rearmament, the French were just trying desperately to prevent any kind of war between their allies, both of which they saw as essential to national defense. In Ethiopia, one of the few areas of Africa that was not under European control, 
The Ethiopian nation and people were entirely dependent on the League. They could not match the Italian military, and so they hoped that by appealing to the League of Nations, they would find support against Italy. As would so often happen, the League of Nations would not prove to be up to the task, and the Ethiopians would not be the first, or the last nation, to be disappointed by the results. In this episode, we will discuss some of the political maneuverings that occurred in the lead-up to the Italian invasion, and next episode we will discuss the events after the invasion. On a terminology note, I will be using Ethiopia to refer to the nation in Africa that Italy invaded, but it's also sometimes referred to as Abyssinia. Uh, if you do any reading on these events, the terms are often used interchangeably and refer to the same nation and geographic region. Also, the borders of Ethiopia at this time are, I think, an exact match for modern-day borders of the nation of Ethiopia, or at least are incredibly similar. The events in Ethiopia would not be the first time that Italian actions in Africa had been violent during the 1930s. Earlier in the 30s, violence had erupted in Libya after the trial of Omar al-Mukhtar, an Arab leader. This would result in the bombing of cities and the use of chemical weapons against entirely defenseless civilians. When this did not end resistance to Italian control, the Italian army led by General Badoglio would escalate the violence through raids where the men were told to be, quote, ferocious and inexorable. Thousands would be captured and imprisoned, men, women, and children, and many would die due to the lack of facilities in prison camps. The violence would continue into January 1934, when Libya was finally handed over to Italian civilian leaders and the military's job was complete. All of this was in preparation for what the Italian leaders saw as a huge opportunity for a bit of imperial expansion for Italy, with the idea that hundreds of thousands of Italians would eventually move to Libya. This would give those immigrants opportunities and also grow the Italian economy and increase Italian control of the region. These numbers would prove to be greatly out of reach, and over the next several years before the war began, the number of Italians who migrated to Libya numbered only in the tens of thousands. This example is just to show the overall blueprint for what Italy hoped to achieve in Ethiopia. However, the global political outlook on Libya was quite different than Ethiopia. Libya was an Italian colony, and any international action led by the League of Nations or other coalition would have required the support of Britain and France, both of whom did not want to set any precedents about international control and oversight of European colonial possessions, for what I think are obvious reasons. During this period, the British were working quite well with the Italians, as they had been since the First World War. In fact, in 1917, a committee had been set up to determine what British policy in Northern Africa should be, and it recommended working closely with the Italians, out of concern that French influence in Ethiopia and elsewhere was in danger of further expansion. During the Paris Peace Conference, Ethiopia was studiously avoided by those involved. And then in the aftermath, Anglo-Italian cooperation sought to ensure the limitation of French influence. When Mussolini took power, there was no real concern in London, at least as it related to the common interests between the two nations in Africa. In 1925, the British negotiated with the Italians and the Ethiopian government so that the British could build a dam on Lake Tana, and in exchange the Italians would be given more control of western Ethiopia. London would still seek to ensure that Ethiopia remained independent, with the hope that it would never come directly into conflict with Italian interests due to the mutually beneficial relations that the two nations had in European affairs, which would prove to be true for a short period of time. In Addis Ababa, the Ethiopians were in some ways trapped between two European nations. 
They would try to push back against the seemingly endless growth of British influence and Italian territorial control, but their options were limited. In eastern Ethiopia, there were some concerns, or Ethiopian concerns, about the Italians building a military installation at the Walwal Oasis, today known as Wellwell, which was far inside the previously agreed-upon border. Whenever the Ethiopian representatives at the League of Nations attempted to bring the matter to the League Council for some kind of resolution, they were always encouraged not to force the issue by the British. This presented a roadblock that the Ethiopians were hesitant to cross. To maintain any control of the situation, the Ethiopians had to remain on good terms with the British, but the British did not want any formal dispute to be put before the League. Instead, the League Council would create one of its favorite tools, the Boundary Commission. The Ethiopian representatives were assured that this commission would be able to restrain Italian ambitions, and it would be done in a way that would prevent issues between the European nations. The problems with such a commission is that to achieve its goals, it needs the cooperation of all parties, and they need to find a solution, or there has to be a third party that is able to force them to accept a solution that is found. While there was hope that a deal could be made with Mussolini and the Italians, this represented mostly just a misunderstanding of what Mussolini's ambitions were for Africa and for Ethiopia. Italian goals in the region were not limited to moving the border a few miles one way or the other. They wanted far greater control and far less British influence on the entire region. This would not be the first or last time that British leaders would believe or or hope that they could both maintain friendly relations with other nations while also believing that they could negotiate on a mutual understanding of restraint which would often simply not exist. Back in Ethiopia, British and Ethiopian representatives would visit Walwal with an armed Ethiopian escort. This visit was fully communicated to the Italian government, however the Italian commander at Walwal, where Italian and African forces were stationed, was not informed. There would be a somewhat heated exchange of words, although actual fighting would not start for several more days. When it did begin, several men were killed on both sides, and the Italian government demanded compensation, compensation that was far greater than what could be expected in such a situation, and they were terms that were designed to be rejected. Ethiopia, now even in more trouble, would send an official appeal to the League of Nations on January 3, 1935, in hopes that the situation could finally be sorted out with the help of other nations. This request, instead of being picked up immediately and handled, would sit with no action for months. This was early 1935, and so things were beginning to shift in Europe. Hitler would announce Germany's intention to rearm itself, rejecting the restrictions placed upon the German military by the Treaty of Versailles. This would cause the British, French, and Italian leaders to meet in April to create the Stressa Front, which would shortly thereafter fall apart. During the Stressa meetings, the topic of Ethiopia was completely avoided. Mussolini made it incredibly clear to everyone involved that Italy would only discuss European affairs, and the British and French were not motivated to push back against this, because they really wanted Italian cooperation in Europe. This is why the final declaration of the Stressa Conference reads, quote, The three powers, the object of whose policy is the collective maintenance of peace within the framework of the League of Nations, find themselves in complete agreement in opposing, by all practical means, any unilateral repudiation of treaties which may endanger the peace of Europe, and will act in close and cordial collaboration for this purpose. End quote. You will note the of Europe part of that quote, 
which was insisted on by Mussolini. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. As the year would continue, the British government, almost against its will, would fall deeper and deeper into the growing tensions between Italy and Ethiopia. Many groups within the government did not want this to happen, mostly due to concerns about the ramifications of a drastic downturn in relations with the Italians. However, there was a strong demand among the British public for Britain to take the lead in enforcing the decisions made by the League of Nations, this being a period when League sentiment was particularly popular in Britain and also safeguarding Ethiopia against Italian aggression that was always part of it. This would mostly result in pressure to perform some kind of political action, but this would also spool out into discussions about economic sanctions to try and force the Italians to stay in line. The British Treasury resisted calls for sanctions out of concern that it would negatively impact trade, which was still recovering from the Great Depression. The Royal Navy was very concerned that such actions might ignite a war, and they were far more concerned with the growing strength of Japan and Germany, and this made good relations with Italy, from a naval perspective, more important than they had been since the end of the war. The British would also need French support if it came to war, and there was some fear that the support may not, you know, be available, given the absolute priority that France put on holding together alliances against Germany. There were also many questions about whether or not the British people really wanted to go to war with Italy over Ethiopia, even if they supported British leadership in the political arena. All of this would cause the British cabinet to delay decisions, or even real discussions, as long as possible. This would be one example of the British being asked to lead the League of Nations, or the League of Nations project, and maybe not being completely willing to do so. Uh, Louis John Smith, in Great Britain in the Abyssinian Crisis, 1935-1936, explains why. Quote, from the first, British statesmen tended to view the peacekeeping function of the League of Nations as essentially conciliatory rather than coercive in nature. In this, they differed consistently from their French counterparts. The British recognized that with the rejection of the covenant by the U.S. Senate, Britain clearly became a producer rather than a consumer of security under the League system. In addition, the nature of economic sanctions was such as to oppose the heaviest burden on the British fleet. End quote. 
Sir Samuel Hoare would take over as Foreign Secretary in June, and he would walk directly into a minefield as tensions began to increase. He would be blamed for much of the eventual failure of British policy, but by the time that he entered the picture in June, the possibility of any kind of reasonable or peaceful settlement had probably already passed. Italy was well on its way to military intervention, and Mussolini had already staked his position on Italian expansion in Africa. There was also a bit of time pressure, with the Italians wanting to launch their invasion as soon as the rainy season was over. In Addis Ababa, the mindset was little different. During July, the resolve of the Ethiopians to defend themselves from invasion grew, and instead of yielding to any kind of international agreement, which would almost assuredly reduce their own sovereignty, Ethiopians planned to defend their borders with all available resources. Hoare was more than willing to put British support behind League Action, but he made it clear that Britain would not go alone. This put negotiations in an odd and somewhat hopeless situation. The Italians would only really negotiate from the assumption of territorial expansion. The Ethiopians would not allow for any of that. And in the middle, the British proposals that they were making were completely off the mark and were unacceptable to both sides. All the while, military preparations continued. In late July, the League Council would once again kick the decision into the future and would set a September 4th deadline before the matter would once again be discussed, making it clear that economic sanctions were a real possibility if the deadline passed. British, French, and Italian representatives would meet in Paris on August 16th to try and negotiate and come to some agreement outside of the League of Nations. Well, I say they negotiated, but that may be too strong of a word. There were discussions, but negotiations imply that there was some sort of bargaining occurring from a shared position of common interest. The British and French wanted to find an agreement. The Italians were, by this point, pretty adamant that they would accept nothing short of full political control of Ethiopia. Just two days later, Mussolini would end the discussions, after rejecting the very basis of a settlement proposed by the other two nations. Mussolini would argue at this point that Italy was simply doing exactly the same thing that the British had done in Egypt over the previous decades, or what the French had done in Morocco. He also informed the French that if economic sanctions were put in place, there would be serious discussions in Rome of withdrawing from all previous Franco-Italian agreements, including those aimed against Germany. These threats put serious questions into whether or not the French would truly support any collective security action originating from the League that might endanger the existing treaty structures of Western Europe. There were also concerns about all the nations that were not part of the League of Nations, Germany obviously being an important one, but also nations like the United States, which had never joined the League. It was also clear that Mussolini could, by September 1935, not be properly reasoned with when it came to discussions about Ethiopia, and that the best possible hope for a peaceful outcome would involve collective League actions to intimidate him and the Italians through threats of possible consequences. Therefore, during the council meetings leading up to and after September 4th, the deadline for an agreement, Hoare and Laval, the French foreign minister, would put an optimistic spin on what might happen moving forward. Then, on September 11th, Hoare would make a speech before the League Assembly, announcing British support for League action on the matter, and the speech would receive a two-minute ovation. That's how much everybody else liked it. There was still some hesitancy among British and French leaders, though, and even though they agreed to begin applying economic pressure on Italy, 
they would also do so slowly and over time, providing every opportunity for negotiations to resume at any moment. A committee was created by the League Council to coordinate actions and to continue to reach out to Rome, and during September there was still belief that a non-violent outcome could be attained. However, in retrospect, this seems highly optimistic, perhaps even foolhardy. Some of the diplomatic language used by Italy in September made it clear that not only did it feel that they could take action in Ethiopia, it did not even believe that the League had jurisdiction over its actions in this case. To quote from a report submitted to the League Council on October 7, 1935, from a committee created to investigate the situation, quote, In presenting his government's memorandum on September 4th, the representative of Italy told the Council that Italy reserved full liberty to adopt any measures that may become necessary to ensure the safety of its colonies and to safeguard its own interests. In the observations which the Italian representative made, on September 22nd, on the subject of the suggestion of the Committee of Five, he said, quote, A case like that of Ethiopia cannot be settled by the means provided by the Covenant. End quote. Of course, there he's referring to the League of Nations Covenant that all the nations had signed. On October 2nd, 1935, the ambiguity of the situation would be over as Italian forces would move into Ethiopia. It had taken almost nine months for the preparations to be completed, and the invasion would be launched from both Eritrea in the north and from Italian Somaliland in the south, and when combined, they would have over 100,000 men. The northern force would be commanded by General Emilio de Bono, and it quickly ran into problems. Part of these issues were supply-related. Bono was insistent that good supply roads should link back to bases in Eritrea, because his army was at the end of a 2,500-mile supply chain from Italy to the port of Massawa and then to the front lines. This made Bono feel justified in his very cautious approach, which limited the speed that he would advance. General Badoglio would arrive to replace him in December to try and move the attacks forward in a quicker pace. In the south, with forces commanded by General Rodolfo Graziani, there would be similar problems. The force in the south was designed to be smaller and more mobile, but Graziani was also very cautious in his approach to the advance, stopping for days and even weeks at a time after only short advances to again secure a proper supply chain. At the same time, the Italian forces had massive advantages in terms of technology. The Italian air force would meet almost no resistance in the air and would be able to operate with impunity. This would allow Italian planes to both attack Ethiopian troops and also to support Italian advances in other ways. For example, a 26,000-man force from the Eritrean Corps would be supplied from the air during a long flanking maneuver, with 113 tons of supplies dropped during this 200-mile advance on Desi, which is one of the first times that aerial resupply was a big part of a military operation. The Italian forces would also be some of the largest motorized and mechanized forces in the world, at least that had seen combat at this point, with the CV-33 two-man tankette with two machine guns for armament being the primary vehicle used by the armored forces. And yet with all of these advantages, again, their advances were very slow due to supply problems. The invasion put the British and French in a bit of a bind. The brutality of the campaign combined with the open flaunting of the League of Nations and the covenant that Italy had signed were troubling. The Ethiopian government would send a telegram to the League of Nations on December 30th, 1935, and here is the full text. 
quote, over and above the violations by the Italians of the laws and usages of war already reported to the League of Nations, they have, during their recent retreat to Shire and Tambien, burned the churches and proceeded to the systematic extermination of the civilian population. Now, December 23rd, they have made use against our troops in the Takazi region of asphyxiating and poison gases, which constitutes a new addition to the list, already long, of Italy's breaches of her international undertakings. We protest vigorously against such inhuman practices. End quote. The League would officially declare that the Italian invasion was an act of aggression, which meant that Britain and France had to, as the League's most important members, either take actions that would alienate them from the Italians, or essentially remove whatever power the League of Nations had, or that still possessed, at this point. There was hesitancy to do either of these actions, though, and instead the League would continue to drift while a middle ground was sought with economic sanctions put in place, but mild ones that did not include some vital commodities like oil. Even these would require some level of willpower and resolve to maintain, and war appeared to be a distinct possibility, even if the French were trying everything to prevent it from happening. Next episode, we will look at the British military situation at this point during the 1930s, and whether or not they, and most importantly the Royal Navy, was ready for a possible war in the Mediterranean. <laughs> 